Hello, and welcome to a Mighty Blaze podcast. I'm your host, Trisha Blanchett. A Mighty Blaze was created in 2020 to connect readers and writers during lockdown and has since developed into the online hotspot for literary news, festival broadcasts, and interviews with legendary authors, debuts, and everyone in between. Today's special guest is not only a best-selling writer, but also a world-renowned neuroscientist and bona fide TED Talk phenom. Lisa Genova is the author of five novels, including Every Note Played, Left Neglected, and of course, Still Alice, which was made into an Oscar-winning film in 2014. In her newest book, Lisa delves into the world of nonfiction with Remember, the Science of Memory and the Art of Forgetting. She talked with a Mighty Blaze co-founder and New York Times bestselling author, Jenna Blum, about tip-of-the-tongue moments, the ways in which our emotions are linked to our memories, and the foolproof method you can use to remember why you walked into that room so sit back and enjoy the conversation as I pass the blaze torch to Jenna and her unforgettable guest, Lisa Genova. Hi, everybody. Welcome to A Mighty Blaze. I'm Jenna Blum, one of the co-founders of The Blaze, and we're so glad to have you with us today for my interview with Lisa Genova. I'm so excited. I am crushing on Lisa. I had to go get my crushing t-shirt. I'm, you know, Love not adjusting yeah, and I told Lisa in the green room she should cross that revolutionary and put Jenna Love on there, but it's okay. We can just crush on each other. We'll dance for Mark, our producer, behind the scenes. Yeah, International Dance Day. International Dance. That's about as much dancing as I do. I do like car dancing from the waist up. That's it, but I know you're a dancer. Everything's from the waist up. Right <laughs> <laughs> life is from the waist up now. Welcome, people. Welcome to our new life. If you've been with The Blaze before, you know that we live life from the waist up, but we live life completely fully. Um, and those of you who are new to The Blaze, who are just joining us today, welcome. Again, if you like what you see here, please give us a like or a follow on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, on YouTube. We are ubiquitous. Please consider signing up, <clears throat> excuse me, for our website at www.amightyblaze.com so you can get our newsletter and you'll never have literary FOMO ever again. We've got some crazy programming coming up for you this week, next week, this month, this summer. It is bonkers, nuts, coconuts, bananas. So sign up for the newsletter. Obviously, we're kicking off our bananas amazing lineup today with again lisa genova <laughs> lisa welcome thank you jenna so happy to be doing this with you that's your official welcome lisa has just released the book remember which i still have in galley but i i didn't want to use the hardcover today because all my notes are in the galley but look at that beautiful book Already an instant New York Times bestseller. No surprise, everything Lisa writes is a New York Times bestseller and should be. And for those of you who are not yet acquainted with Lisa, where have you been? Under a rock, obviously. <laughs> um, but I'm going to read Lisa's official bio so you can get better acquainted with her. So you ready for this, Lisa? You ready for you? I love you, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, buckle up, honey. Here comes you. Lisa Genova graduated valedictorian from Bates College with a degree in biopsychology and a PhD in neuroscience from Harvard. This is so fascinating to me. You are acclaimed as the Oliver Sacks of fiction and the Michael Crichton of brain science, which I concur, you make brain science accessible to us all. Lisa is the New York Times bestselling author, multiple, I should add, um, of the novel Still Alice, Left Neglected, Love Anthony, Inside the O'Briens, and Every Note Played. You may remember Still Alice uh, got turned into a movie of the same name, which won Julianne Moore the Best Actress Oscar for her role in the film adaptation. Every Note Played is in production starring Christoph Waltz, which is such a great casting for that book, I think. I, I loved that book. Okay. We want to know all the dirt about all the movie things. Okay. Okay, Lisa's first work of nonfiction, Remember, 
The Science of Memory and the Art of Forgetting was released in this March. Instant New York Times bestseller, as I said. Lisa's first TED Talk, What You Can Do to Prevent Alzheimer's, has been viewed over 5 million times. And your latest TED Talk, How Memory Works and Why Forgetting is Normal, Thank God, will be released on the 21st. So, so it was released. It How's came it? out last week. Yep, it's oh my God. this morning because I'm still obsessive about it. It's got over <laughs> 700,000 views. So oh my gosh, amazing. Amazing. Just the start of your incredible world domination with that second TED Talk. We know you are a TED Talk darling. I think so many people, when I told them about this interview, knew you already from your fiction, from Still Alice and from Every No Played and Inside the O'Briens and Left Neglected. So I was getting a ton of excited emails and pings on social media saying, oh my gosh, you know, I use this in my talk or my husband uses this to illustrate his brain science um, discussions for work. Even more than that, people were really excited about remember because all of us have challenges with remembering and forget things so often. So I would love to hear how you got drawn to this particular topic about memory and forgetting. Okay. Oh, all right, Jenna, thank you for that fabulous intro. I'm so excited to be talking with you. So this book, <laughs> this book evolved mm -hmm. out of, um, I've been talking about Alzheimer's and memory and forgetting using still Alice as the vehicle for that conversation mm -hmm. around the world for over a decade. And because it's a scary topic, right? We, the idea, if you know someone who has had Alzheimer's, you've witnessed that devastation. And if you haven't, you can imagine how terrifying that would be. You know, memory is so essential to our everyday functioning and our sense of self, mm -hmm. our identity is wrapped in, you know, everything you just read about me, right? It's like the who have I been in my life? So memory is super important. We're terrified of Alzheimer's. And I've been trying to talk to folks about this disease in a, in a way that is human and compassionate. How can we look at this thing that's so scary and, uh, and so overwhelming? Mm -hmm. And I found that the conversation always started with Alzheimer's, but then it would migrate over to memory and forgetting in general. So it was, you know, readers waiting at the back of the book signing line so they could have me all to themselves or women would corner me in the ladies room. And it was always people over 40, definitely, you know, mostly women in their 50s and 60s and the men too, but they would come to me with, you know, almost as if they were confessing something. This is a secret that they haven't spoken aloud yet. And it was, I'm forgetting names all the time. Mm -hmm. And if I don't write down what I have to do later, I, I won't remember to do it. And I, I can't tell you the number of times I walk into the bathroom or the kitchen or the living room and I don't know why I'm in there. And so I'm thinking, I is this the beginning of Alzheimer's? Like, do I already have it? Am I losing my mind? Mm -hmm. And so every I'm listening and I already know where we're going in this conversation because this has happened to me hundreds of times where I say, no. You have a normal, healthy human brain. This is the price of playing poker. Our memory system isn't perfect and we forget all kinds of things. And these kinds of things are normal. And what happens is that over a certain age, people don't know that. And then they assume that this is the beginning of dementia, of a disease, and they get really scared and freaked out and stressed out and, and ashamed even. So people have been really burdened with this, this fear, which is not necessary. So I'm, I wrote this book to try to take that stress off of people's plates because, you know, we're stressed out enough over things that are actually worthy of our stress. Yes. Um, but this isn't one of them. And I do want folks to be one of the things I've been sort of pounding the pavement on is trying to get folks to be involved in and understand you have influence over your brain health. So sort of like heart health or our lady parts, like what can we do to influence our, our brain health? But if everybody's out there thinking that every time I forget someone's name, this is already, I'm already doomed, then we disengage and we feel like we're you know helpless and can't have any, any influence over this. So I want people to understand what's normal, let that go. Um, or, you know, I can also help you find, like when you walk into a room and don't know why you're in there, I can show you how to get it, but also just not to freak out. And then to be mindful of if something does, if forgetting does go down a road that isn't normal, to then have the courage to look into that and address it because it might not be Alzheimer's. It can be all kinds of reasons for why 
we have a little bit of foggy brain or amnesia. I mean, a lot of us feel foggy this year and there's very good reasons for that too. So we're mostly normal <laughs> human brains. They are so wildly amazing and wildly imperfect. Oh, I love it. Mostly normal. I'm going to put that on my next t-shirt. And by the way, I wore my crushing t-shirt because I'm crushing on Lisa today and did the dance. Every time I talk, I'm going to do a dance. Yeah. Sorry for those of you listening to the podcast, but we are doing awesome crushing dances. So I know you're a neuroscientist, but if you could write the Lady Parts book next, we would all be really grateful. But meanwhile, it was so comforting to read, remember, and know that my memory lapses are normal. In fact, I was talking to a dog mom on the Commonwealth Mall just this morning. She said, oh, I can't wait to watch your interview with Lisa Genova because I keep walking into the, a room and saying, wait, why am I in here again? And I said, aha, when you read this book, you will know that is like the one of the number one things that people forget or like, where are my glasses? Where are my glasses? Where are my glasses? And they're, they're on your head, right? So I do that all yeah. the time. Can you talk a little bit about what the top lapses are and yeah. why we should not be afraid of them? I love this. Yes. So let's start with the, where are my glasses? Where are my keys? Where did I put my phone? Where did I park my car? Like, where did I put my stuff? So we immediately blame memory. And was uh, like, I can't find my phone. Oh my God, what is wrong with my memory? I'm doing this many times a day. This can't be normal. There's some, like, there's something wrong with my brain. No. So this actually isn't even a symptom of, a, of anything having to do with your memory. This is a symptom of distraction. So the first necessary ingredient in forming a memory of anything that's going to last longer than this present moment is attention. Mm -hmm. So if you don't if you put your glasses down but you're in the middle of texting someone or you're running up the stairs to get something or you you know kids are talking to you someone's talking to you if you're thinking about the next five things and you don't give a moment's notice to where you put those glasses that information cannot go into the memory process to begin with mm -hmm. so i can't create a memory of it so later when i can't find them it's it was you know it's not my memory it's it's i didn't pay attention in the first place um so we're living very distracted lives. We're not paying attention to what we're doing and the things go missing. Um, I, the, I love the example of driving. I think a lot of us, if, if you drive, you've had the experience of you driving a familiar route and maybe you're 20 minutes into your journey and you have a sudden moment of, wait, where am I? I don't remember any of this trip. And it can feel a little freaky. I use the example in my book of driving over the Sagamore Bridge when I go from Boston to Cape Cod. You'd think that if you know I've got my eyes open, right? So the information's coming into my brain. I see the giant bridge. I, I drive over it successfully. But if I'm not paying attention to the bridge, I will be, you know, 10 miles later and and think, did I cross the bridge yet? Where am I? Um, and I won't ever have a memory of having gone over it if I didn't pay attention to it. So if I'm lost in thought or listening to an audiobook or just not paying attention to the bridge, which becomes background if you guys, if you've seen things a million times, your brain doesn't register it. So your memory is not a video camera recording a constant stream of every sight and sound and smell and emotion and that you come across. You can only capture into memory what you pay attention to. So that's, I think, going to be key for a lot of folks. The things that go missing, don't blame your memory. Um, so another one. Oh, what's his name? Oh, the guy, the guy, um, oh, the actor who plays Tony Soprano or the name of that movie that Sandra Bullock was in with the football player. Mm -hmm. And I'm probably, I actually, when you give that example in the book, I knew that the Sopranos because it's James Gandolfini because he's my bae. But um, yeah, but I was like, oh, what is the name of that movie? And it was such an excellent illustration of what you call the TOT moment. Yeah, like, the top, tip of the top. Like the, the, the guy who was in the thing that time with the thing. You know what I'm talking about. The thing. I did this the other day on a call, on an interview, where I said, this book is like Dirty Dancing had a baby with the thing the thing you guys know the show with the woman with the microphone the thing with the thing and it, it was like on camera and i thought oh my god i am totally like i am over the hill and i should just go and sit and suck my thumb somewhere like in an assisted living home whatever the thing is called so yes tip of tongue please explain tip to us like, why so, why why does this happen to us why? and so again 
This is not a sign of Alzheimer's, period. If you, so proper nouns in particular, and this is, you'll notice they are, they're the movie titles, the book titles, the people's names, the cities, the places. I, I know I know it, it's in my brain, I cannot retrieve it, so what's wrong with my memory? Nothing. <clears throat> these, these words are, they live in, you can picture them as living in neurological cul-de-sacs. So, you know, James Gandolfini's connected to a lot of things, right? So he was in The Sopranos, he was in that lovely movie with Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Um, I can picture him in the bathroom, walking down the driveway <laughs> in The Sopranos to get the newspaper. Like I can hear the sound of his voice, but ultimately to get to his name, I have to travel basically down one street is the only way to get in there. And it's the house at the end of that cul-de-sac to produce his name. Names are an abstract concept. Mm -hmm. So they're tough to get to, as opposed to common nouns, which live, you can picture those living in the middle of Main Street, USA, with you know a zillion intersections in and out. So super easy to grab, pen, phone, um, computer, all of that's easy. But James Gandolfini can be tough. And so a, it happens when there's only partial or weak activation of the neurons that lead into that cul-de-sac, or we often bump into a loosely related word, something similar in sound or meaning, something that might have the same first letter. And when that happens, it hooks us and we go into a different neural neighborhood. And so those words that are similar, um, but not what you're looking for, in psychology, they refer to them as the ugly sisters which people are already telling me, we should change that. I'm like, I know, I know, they should be like- <laughs> They're blaming you. They're like, they're why are you using this anti-feminist term to describe a distracting memory lane? Like, I know, and I didn't come up with it, but like me. the cute cousin, I don't know. Like, so, but it's this other word, the ugly sister, and it, it, it lures you that down neural pathways that go to them and you get stuck in that neighborhood. And so every time you're like, oh, what's, you know, I did this with Joe. I was asking, what's the name of that famous surfer? And I came up with Lance. I'm like, no, it's not Lance. And mm -hmm. he knew it wasn't Lance too. But now because I said Lance, that sent his neurons firing down into the neighborhood of Lance Armstrong, the cyclist. And so he was stuck there and couldn't get out. And so then this happens, right? So then you give up and you go about your day and you've stopped trying. And then a couple of hours later or right before bed or you're in the shower or wherever and like, poof, like it's Laird Hamilton. That's the surfer. Like, but how does that happen? I wasn't even trying and my brain found it. By stop, when you call off the hunt, you're, you've stopped perseverating on that ugly mm. sister. So I'm no longer, if Joe's no longer thinking of Lance Armstrong, that gives the correct set of neurons in the different neighborhood down the cul-de-sac over there a chance to get activated. So tip of the tongue is frustrating, but it's normal. And so I, I just want folks to like relax. And then the other thing I can help you with is a lot of you think that, well, if I look it up, then I'm cheating and I'm gonna make my memory worse and I'm gonna give myself digital amnesia. And this is a, like more stress that you don't need because it's not true. So you can look up all of your blocked words, all of those tip of the tongue words, you can Google them and just be done with it right away. It will not weaken your memory whatsoever. Thank God. So memory is not like a muscle. Like the more you use it, the more it it activates. Or it is. It is for it is for all the other kinds of memories and things. So if you're trying to, if you're studying for a test, if you are um, trying to, if just something that happened, if you're trying to remember, if you're learning a new. Um, instrument um, practice, like going over those neurons over and over again, will help. Um, strengthen that the creation of that memory. It will make those circuits stronger uh, for sure. But this name is something you already know. You've created that memory. It's in there. It's just got, it's got, um, it's difficult finding it because it's a proper noun. Um, so if I Google it, it, it does not weaken my memory's ability to remember where I put my glasses or to give a Zoom presentation or anything else. It's not cross-training. Um, if I suffer through it and eventually come up with it, um, I'm not less likely to experience the tip of the tongue of that word again at some point. So you can Google the names. Okay, okay thank God. Yeah. Um, yes, because um, you're, 
coming up with something that you're not going to use every day, right? Like, unless you're from Jersey, you're not going to think about James Gandolfini every day. No, and so he's, he's in like there. He's in your brain. For whatever reason today, the neurons that link to his name, the ultimate last, again, that last stretch of road, that 100 feet to his house is like, I, 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 I got him, but I just can't produce it. So there's also the circuitry involved in producing the word as well. Um, so that final step in retrieval. Um, the other one is why to come in this room. That's oh, a big one. Always, always. So, yeah. I mean, so here's <laughs> there's sort of two reasons for this. One, it has to do with prospective memory. So this is your memory for what you plan to do later. This mm. is your to-do list for your future you. And it sucks in everybody. Our human brains are not designed to remember to do something later. And so this is this is why writing it down, putting it in your phone, your calendar. Today I had, I had this interview in my calendar and an alert, like get on the computer in time. Don't rely on your brain to remember your dentist appointment, to pick up the dry cleaning, to buy milk at the store, to you know get on your Zoom calls. Airline pilots do not rely on their brains to remember to lower the wheels before landing the plane. Like they don't, they use a checklist. Um, so anything you need to do later, if you're trying to rely on your brain, there's a good chance you'll forget. So if I'm in my bedroom and I'm about to read before bed and I've got my book that I'm about to read and I've forgotten my glasses, mm -hmm. um, oh, I think they're in the kitchen. I need to go remember, I, when I get to the kitchen, I'm gonna look for glasses. So that's the memory of what I intend to do later. A mere 10 seconds later, I show up in the kitchen and I don't know why I'm there. So perspective memory is terrible, but I've only asked it to remember something for 10 seconds. Like, what is the deal? So the other contributing factor here has to do with context. So our memories are a best formed and most easily and fully retrieved when the context of memory creation matches the context of memory retrieval. So a memory is the associated neural connections that form basically a neural circuit um, that is the sights, the sounds, the information, the emotion, all of the, the, the details in the sensory information that is the memory. So that can be, you know, if I'm learning vocabulary words, well, it can also be the time of day that I'm learning them. Anything that's available while I'm learning something or experiencing something can be potentially part of the memory. So how am I hungry? Am I caffeinated? Um, is Does the room smell like lavender? Like what's going on while I'm learning that? And if those elements are available when I'm trying to retrieve it, it those sensory details can help trigger the the recollection of the entire memory so what does this have to do with getting in the kitchen so i formed the memory of what i planned to do in my bedroom surrounded by bookcases the book i'm reading the time of day the bed i read before bed i show up in the kitchen and the cues in the context are the refrigerator the stove the bananas in the bowl like am i hungry Am I thirsty? What am I doing in here? So the cues actually, again, misdirect the hunt. So I don't know what I'm doing. So if this happens to you, and it will, this is gonna happen to you, you walk into a room, you don't know why you're in there, go back to the room you were just in, either in your mind's eye or physically go there and imagine the environment, imagine the cues that were there. And it should immediately deliver to you what it is that you're looking for. It's so and no, you don't have Alzheimer's and your glasses are on your head anyway. So you might as well head. just assume your glasses are always on your head. They're always there. Just the oh, way when I'm freaking out about my phone, it's always in my hand. It's like I'm literally talking about my, my phone. phone. Where's my phone? <laughs> my phone is missing. And I'm talking on the phone to somebody about my phone being missing. Um, Slow we down, people. Yeah, just stop. Deep breaths. Um, so we were talking about this in the green room a little bit, the contextual retrieval of memory, which I learned about in college as state-induced learning. And I was joking about the fact that I used to say in college, well, if I studied when I was drunk, then if I'm drunk when I take the test, I should do better on the test. And Lisa said that was true. So all of my tips and hacks for studying were right, right? Except maybe not be drunk. I was like, well, you might want to dial that back a little and like not be drinking while you're studying. But yeah, I get it. You were young. We were young. I've been there. Mm. But yeah, it's true. If you're if you're caffeinated, if you're drinking coffee while you study, drink a coffee while you're taking the test. You want to 
the the physiological state that you're in so it's called state dependent or context dependent learning it affects your ability to retrieve there's i love the study there was the study out of um london where the they they had scuba divers learn a list of words mm -hmm. either underwater so they had a, an easel anchor anchored to them the, the bottom of the ocean and they had to go down and, and learn these vocabulary words or they learned them on the beach. And then they tested them for how many words they could remember either underwater or on the beach. And as you probably can guess, if they learned the words underwater, they remembered more words if they had to retrieve it underwater. If they had to retrieve those words on the beach, they did worse. They did not re they did not remember as many so the context matters and this also like just to give folks like a lived sense of this if you maybe you like a lot of us don't as we grow older we've lived in more places in the world right we're not in the same context as we were when we were in our teens our 20s our 30s our 40s we've we've a lot of us have moved around and so maybe you're someone who's thinking god you know it's weird i'm 50 and i can't remember much of my 20s what's happened to that decade? Like, I'm really fuzzy. I can't, or I can't tell you what, I don't, can't really remember my childhood. I don't remember much from being 10. So, you know, maybe you live in New York now and you're surrounded by skyscrapers and traffic and taxi cabs, or maybe you're in Boston and you grew up in the Midwest. Like, so if it's different, it has to, uh, this, this lack of being able to remember has to do with context. If you were to go back to the neighborhood you grew up in, if you were going to go back to your college campus and be surrounded by the sights and sounds and smells and tastes and feelings, those would trigger and, el and elicit a lot of memories that are in there. They're just, they need to be prompted by the context. It's so fascinating. I, when I was taking the GRE, somebody told me at that point, this is like way in the you know early 90s, if you listen to Mozart, if you listen to classical music while you're studying, it will actually make your memory more solidified. So I listened to Mozart like a good girl, not not drunk, not drunk, I should point out. Um, and what was fascinating to me is that although when I was taking the GRE, I could not recreate that. I couldn't bring my boombox into the test right. with me. I heard the Mozart while I was taking the test. What uh -huh. is that? You're like, so it's because the sound that the, that music was part of the sensory experience that you were living when you were learning what you were learning for the GREs. Mm -hmm. So it is, it goes, it's part of the memory now. So writing the answers to certain questions are associated with certain Mozart songs for you. So the, the questions and answers themselves will trigger part of the memory, which is Mozart and Likewise, if you were to listen to Mozart, it might trigger some of the information you studied for the GREs. Um, importantly, it doesn't have to be Mozart. So this is a myth that was out there for a while that listening to Mozart will make you smarter, listening to Mozart will make your memory stronger. No, none of that is true, but it is an additional piece of sensory information that you can add to the memory to help you remember it's it's more links to what you're trying to recall so you know you can cool. listen to eminem and it, it'll have the same same effect um and so how do i want to say this so like your memories are going to be you want them to be full and deeply richly encoded so if you just straight try to wrote memorize your list of words um that's gonna be tough you're gonna you're at a disadvantage if you can attach music or visual imagery make the visual imagery emotional weird surprising disgusting um like make the visual imagery live somewhere so it's in a, in a location that you can picture um our brains have evolved to remember where things are really really well you can imagine that it was super important to remember where home was, where safety was, where the predators live, where the food is. So if you can you know, attach and associate what you're trying to learn to as many other sensory modalities as possible, you know, in addition to the music, you can attach you know, visual information and visual information in a certain location that will give you more cues to, to hook onto that will then trigger the activation of the memory as a whole. It's so fascinating. So if I were studying for a test about James Gandolfini and I was having a hard time remembering his name, I could think about him lying in his robe in a hammock, eating like easy cheese in my grandma's backyard. Right. So I had like 
Um, and then I could also do something like where I have, I'm cooking bacon. So like all of those um, multi-dimensional sort of yeah. synaptic experiences getting coded. And I'm never going to forget that because there's bacon and easy cheese and my grandma's yard. And it's right. so you've made this weird and our brains also love story. Hello, novelists. Like, yes. our, like our brains love story. And so whenever you can um, wrap those images into a story that again, can be very strange. It doesn't have to make sense. So like I, the example I used, um, I used something similar to this in the book, but I've been telling folks like, okay, say I need to get milk at the grocery store. Simple, one thing. Do you know how many times I've like, oh, I need to get milk because I've got kids and we make cookies and waffles and things and I run out of milk and, and I'll go, I need to get milk. And I come home with all kinds of groceries and have forgotten the milk. Mm -hmm. so, okay, I need to remember to get milk. Let's say I don't write it down, so my perspective memory is on its own, except what if I can attach something weird and, and visual and put it somewhere? So I've, I did this. I imagined Dwayne The Rock Johnson milking a cow on my kitchen <laughs> that's standing on my kitchen table, and Tina Fey is lying on my kitchen table with her mouth open, and he's squirting the milk into her mouth. I don't know why I came up with this. It's weird, but I never forget milk anymore because if I need milk, I just think of that. It cracks me up. I got it. There it is. Nobody's ever going to forget that ever again. Don't Thank you so much. That was incredibly <laughs> memorable. I think based on what you said before, it's kind of like you're building more streets to a cul-de-sac where a memory lives, right? So instead of having and powerful memory, ones, right? Right? Because right, if we right. choose things that our brains love, that are powerful. So our brains love things that are meaningful, emotional, surprising, new. Mm. So uh, if you can add those and, and locations in space. So if you can add those things in, it's not just adding information that's neutral, right? So I'm not going to try to attach it to something boring or blah, or I, I don't know, like just, yeah, it's a, uh, it's, it's a, uh, brushing my teeth. I don't know. Like that's too boring. Right, so right. you want to you attach it to you know, James Gandolfini in the hammock with the cheese and the bacon in your grandma's yard. Yeah. Yeah. I'm never going to forget that either. So we're going to do a little test, you guys. Um, <laughs> thank you. Um, I would ace a test about James Gandolfini, <laughs> but I might not ace a test about buying milk or remembering where my glasses are. So our memories are encoded, are more accessible to us when surprising, emotional, new and and you just meaningful. said this literally 10 seconds ago meaningful we remember what meaningful. Sorry. okay so you guys at the end of this call i'm going to ask you how do our brains most effectively encode memory meaningful emotional surprising and novel so we're going to try and see i'll see if i even remember to give that test at the end of the interview but let's see how we can retrieve this we had a great question i'm just going to pop it on the screen um, from our thoughtful bro mark cecil who has lost a lot of smell over the past year or so not from covid even though i think he gave us all covid secretly um we were talking about the importance of of the olfactory in in creating memory and how vivid that is and it's actually something that i teach my novelists and remind them to use as a device in their books like if you put this the smell of pine or the smell of car exhaust or the smell of Baby powder actually is so nostalgic to people. It's been shown that it stops panic attacks, like right in the oh, middle of an wow. attack if they smell baby powder because they associate it with something calming. Like yeah. what? what is the answer to this? Would Mark um, have trouble then retrieving certain memories? Well, he'll have trouble retrieving memories associated. Like he won't be able to use smell as a trigger for memories, but it doesn't mean those memories will be lost. So if he has, uh, if he dated someone in high school who were Calvin Klein, Calvin Klein's obsession. And- Which so, we all did, by the way. <laughs> so if we're dating ourselves here. So if I were to walk into an elevator and someone had that on, it then might trigger, you know, memory of being 16 and, um, you know, where, whatever I'm doing, like, oh, I'm with, I'm with a boyfriend and we're going to the beach and whatever we're doing. So all of that can be available to me. This, so your olfactory bulb, your olfactory cortex has very strong and direct connections to both your amygdala and your hippocampus, your limbic system. So this, the hippocampus is the structure that is necessary for the formation of new memories. And so smell is very much 
strongly linked. If smell is available, it will be strongly linked to what you are remembering or what you are creating, the memory you're creating. So if it's absent, then it, A, this, I won't be able to smell stuff that will trigger things, but the, the memory, if it's made of other elements, if it's, you know, if I then go to that, if I go to Good Harbor Beach in Gloucester, I'll remember that boyfriend from when I'm 16 without the smell of Calvin Klein obsession. Um, but smell is powerful. Smell and music are sort of two of the like very strongly encoded, robust elements that can trigger memories, right? So if you're in your car and your a song comes on the radio you haven't heard in 30 years, A, you might know all of the lyrics still. So you're prompted and you can sing along to the whole thing. You haven't sung those words in 30 years. And it will probably bring you back to, oh yeah, I was living in Washington DC then. You remember your apartment, you remember the people you worked with you hadn't consciously thought of them in a long time. So smell and music um, are very stable over time and are very strong triggers for um, uh, recalling a memory. So fascinating. I have those songs. I, every time I hear Pet Shop Boys by Suburbia or you know Forever Young by Alphaville, I'm in my 16 year old body, but in a very sensory way, You know, like driving down the Garden State Parkway with my friends Bernadette and Kirsten going to get gravy fries. So I sometimes use the music to trigger the memory or use music when I'm writing to trigger emotional states, oh, to stay in smart. that emotional state. Um, I love all this. So um, Margaret has said that. like meaningful, emotional, surprising novel and storytelling, right? I would make this men's meaningful, emotional, novel, surprising. But this is one of the ways people help themselves remember things, help themselves with recall and, and retrieval, right? Is to make it into a mnemonic, mnemonic I swear I know how to say that. Mnemonic device. Can you talk about other ways we can help ourselves remember things? Yes. So, I mean, so it, it, it depends on the what you're trying to remember. So if you are studying for something, so self-testing works better than just repeating the information over and over again. So instead of, you know, if you're... Uh, Ciao means hello in Italian. So just saying ciao, hello, ciao, hello. If I say it instead, like think of flashcards. Ciao, what does that mean? Hello, like come up with the answer. So you're putting the information in and you're retrieving it out. So if you can go over the neural circuits in both directions, you're reinforcing that information even more. But repetition does make your memory stronger. If you're learning how to do something, so... Um, this is muscle, called muscle memory, but it doesn't live in your muscles. It lives in your brain. The choreography for how to do things is a memory that then tells your muscles what to do. Mm -hmm. um, so if you're learning to play tennis or uh, piano or you're learning to juggle, whatever you're learning to do, the more you do it, the more you are going over those neural circuits in your brain first, at, which is telling your muscles what to do and your muscles sort of get strengthened and designed to then become good at the task as well. But it begins with your brain and that memory becoming stronger through repetition. Um, I mean, we talked about a lot of this already, Jenna, with like, you know, make it visual, make it emotional, um, feel it. So again, mm. like you feel something about what you're trying to remember, you remember it more. And so if you think about the books that you remember that you can still talk about or the movies that you that you loved that you can remember and share, you, it, they probably moved you emotionally. And the ones you've forgotten probably didn't hit you where you live, probably didn't make you feel terrified or grief stricken or joyful or in love. Like if you didn't tap into those human emotions, it's much harder to remember something. That's one of the questions I had for you actually. I have been, I actually wrote in the margins of the book. So for novelists, does that mean that we need to create very emotional situations in our books so that readers remember them years afterwards? Because I remember having conversations with my mom about certain books we loved and it was because those books elicited an emotional response. Is that a good tactic for writers? Should you be trying to tap into your audience's emotions for any creative? Well, I think of course, anyway, I think that, you know, as just for the experience in the moment as well. I think that to feel something is our human birthright and it's how we're connected to each other and it's what we're looking for. We're not, you know, we're not robots walking around. We want to, we want to feel. And so I think that that's just a lovely byproduct is if we can get people to feel big, 
those big human emotions that your story will be more memorable. Stories will also be more memorable if people feel compelled to talk about it after. So again, we remember what we rehearse, what we repeat, what we reminisce. And so this is why book clubs are great. If you wanna remember what you've read, um, have a chance to talk about it with someone after and you will reinforce what happened. A lot of times, you know, if I finish a book and quickly move on to the next thing, I'll remember the gist of it, but I'll have a heck of a time coming. I, I read that book just a month ago. Why? I can't remember much about it. So that can happen if you just abandon it and don't take time to sort of go over what you've what you've just encoded into memory. Interesting. And I just realized just now while we were talking why there are certain books that I read like 20, 25 years ago. Um, and I remember where I was when I read certain passages that I really loved. And I think it's a combination of the, the contextual um, environment and then also my emotional, strong emotional response. I, have a, I got so curious about um, triggering too when I was thinking about this, which is sort of a, a different phenomenon. I was thinking about triggering and about trauma and how memory plays into those things. But before that, I wanted to ask a question that is about me, um, which is if you're an emotional person and I'm told I'm an emotional person, I don't know why people say that, but does that mean that I remember more things because everything is a big deal? Like, you know, if I, my dishwasher gave out this week and I was like, this is the worst day ever. Oh my God. You know, I mean, I'm not somebody who's like, call the freaking repairman, get a new dishwasher. I'm like, oh my God, my life is so bad. Am I gonna remember this forever more because I'm more emotional? Yes, yes. <laughs> um, and so I, you know, I'm not doing like the fMRI study on your brain and we don't have a big clinical trial here, but the answer makes sense to me that it is yes. So we do, we remember what's emotional and we forget what isn't. So like, stay with me on this for a sec, folks. So I, will wager that you actually most of most of y'all out there don't remember most of your own lives so because we our brains are not designed to remember things that are emotionally neutral same old same old and so what do we do every day and the pandemic has made this so much worse because we don't have dinner parties to go to and concerts and plays and travel and we're like living in the house and all we do is the same thing every day right we get up we shower we brush teeth we drink the coffee we eat the meals we sit on the screens we do the social media we go to bed like it's the same day all the time and so we're not it's like i tell people this is the most memorable year that you won't remember mm -hmm. because it's the days we feel this right it's, they're blurring into each other like is it friday is it tuesday like i don't know um but if you're an emotional person if you experience things as a big deal like whoa like you know so you we remember we remember our first kisses but not the 20th because we get used to it right but if you're emotional if things like feel big to you that neural input from your amygdala is very powerful into your hippocampus and it basically wakes your hippocampus up and says hey whatever's going on right now is important can't you feel how important this is <laughs> consolidated into memory and so yeah i think that if you're cut off from your emotions and walled off and kind of numbed out um you might not remember things as well emotion plays a it's it's how we're designed right it makes sense that um, and we have these collective so let me let me put it to folks this way. So we have these collective sort of public memories for the same events that are very emotional. So if uh, and also stunning, like shocking, surprising, but uh, very emotional. So we all um, have what's called flashbulb memories, mm -hmm. and it's these vividly recalled, confidently held memories for something that happened that was very emotional and shocking. So um, for older folks, where you were when JFK was shot or John Lennon was killed, um, where you were, what you were doing, what time of day it was, how you felt when the space shuttle, space shuttle Challenger blew up, when um, the Twin Towers collapsed on 9-11, like these are to all of us very emotional moments that like we have these memories um doesn't mean our, those are accurate and that's a whole other topic if you want to do that but like memory memories get made when they're emotional because it's your brain signals are telling your memory system this is important it's it wakes up your nervous system to like this is this is important this is 
very good or very bad, but either way, it's something that could be essential for your survival is kind of how that evolved. So interesting. And I have um, a related question to that, which is also about me. Sorry if you tuned into this to like ask questions about yourselves, people. But I was wondering about um, repressed memory, if that is actually a thing or conversely, like I tend to remember a lot of stuff because I remember it maybe emotionally or for many other myriad reasons. Um, but there are memories that I have that are harder to retrieve and then yet when they are retrieved they're flashbulb memories that are about very emotional things right so my family members could say do you remember when this happened or that happened and it was something that was um traumatic or dramatic or shocking and i'm like oh god i had forgotten all about that i buried it but as soon as they mention it it pops into my head as a full vignette can you speak to that a little bit like how memory triggers work for people who've been in trauma situations yeah and it can it can sort of go one of two ways and i didn't go into this too much in the book because i think that you know a book about trauma and ptsd and, and memories is like that's a whole that's another book for for someone really? else really sorry i'm sorry i just had no, to i can give you a great answer on this so like one is when it's repressed it isn't so much that it's it's repressed is is that if you've chosen not to revisit that memory um, so if I leave a memory alone for decades and decades, it can, it can be very hard to access. So it's a weakened memory. Those neurons are not strong. Those neurons are not well-traveled and haven't been recently activated. So it's, they're going to be very, those connections, a memory is a, again, a circuit of associated connections. Mm -hmm. So they haven't been um, used and so they're very weak and difficult to activate. Um, they might actually be retracted. So, like if you leave, a, there's evidence for both. If you leave a memory alone for long enough, those physical connections can actually, those neuroanatomical connections can retract. And so then the memory can actually be erased. Um, but assuming it hasn't been erased and it's just weak, that if you get enough of the neurons that lead to it to be activated, if you're reminded, if someone says, oh, this, this, and that, and it gains enough of a threshold to then activate the memory, um, then you'll, oh my God, I had completely forgotten about that. Who knew I still knew that? Mm -hmm. um, and that happens whether or not it's trauma or not. Like I, at one point I would have said, well, I don't remember any of the Italian I learned in seventh grade. Um, but then if someone started rattling off the days of the week, I could finish it. Whatever it was, um, and it was, whoa, how did I do that? Didn't know that was in there. The converse tends to happen more, which is you people who've experienced trauma end up with PTSD and can't leave the memory alone, cannot mm. stop revisiting it, cannot stop reliving the emotional content of that day in battle or the car accident or the sexual abuse, like it just won't stop playing. I can't leave the memory alone. Um, and so for those folks, there's um, there's an interesting modality of therapy where um, a therapist can help folks deal with this in, in using sort of an aspect of episodic memory or memory for what happened, which is a little funky. So unlike your memories for the stuff you know, which is all the stuff you learned in school, all the facts and information. So like six times six is 36 and George Washington was the first president, all that stuff. That's stable over time, not at risk for like changing, no matter if I say six times six is 36, a hundred times, it's not gonna become six times six is 74. Mm -hmm. um, this, your memories for how to do things, stable over time. So this is where the expression, it's just like riding a bike. I learned to ride a bike when I'm six. If I don't ride a bike again for years, I can get on it. And oh my God, my brain still remembers how to do this. Um, your memory for stuff that happened is different. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that every time I replay, um, recall, reminisce about something that happened, my brain has the opportunity and vulnerability to change it. So I can add things, subtract things, often totally unconsciously. Um, I might be of a different opinion now. I have more wisdom now. I learned some new things. I might change it a little bit um, to fit who I am now, to tell the story better, whatever. And then this is where it gets weird. My brain will consolidate the new version of the memory over the old one. So the old one is gone 
and now I've got this updated 2.0 version of the of what happened. So for the folks with PS, PTSD, with under the guidance of a therapist who knows how to do this, I can ask you to recall the traumatic event of what happened, but we're gonna either leave out or soften the emotional aspects of it. Mm. And like, tell me what happened, but we're not gonna get, we're gonna replace some of those, you know, terrifying and traumatic emotions with something softer, something gentler. And then we're what will happen is, and own it, like try to visualize that that's what happened. And that's how I feel when I recall that memory, you'll restore that new version over the old one. And over time can replace the very traumatic memory with this newer version, which, which is, um, is less trauma inducing. That is so fascinating. Thank you. And I, I bet that helps a lot of people. I think about techniques like EMDR that I've been reading about that mm -hmm. that help with trauma. Um, we could, we've been on for almost an hour and I still, I know people had questions about still Alice and the movies and books and your illustrious career. And guys, I could do like a part two, three and four with Lisa because her life is fascinating. She trained as a neuroscientist and now is a best-selling author, had an unusual path to publication, like so many things I could ask. But I, I think of you at this moment in time as the sort of ambassador of comfort when it comes to memory, mm, because um, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad. But I, I think the book is so fascinating in every single aspect of memory and and forgetting and why it's sometimes good to forget and what is the difference between having dementia or early Alzheimer's, or we all probably have early Alzheimer's in a way, right? Um, but, um, and then just sort of average tip of the tongue stuff. Um, because you are that ambassador of comfort right now, I'm going to ask you for the top things you can recommend for us to do to strengthen our memories. Okay. And so super quick, right? It's because we're out of time. Um, not, not totally. Okay. So so there are things, so aside from like the, the stuff we've already talked about, there's brain health that supports your memory both today and for preventing Alzheimer's in the future. And so there's a few things that I can give you um, pretty quickly. So one has to do with sleep. So humans require seven to nine hours a night of sleep for optimal health. So a lot of us don't get that. And I don't want people to freak out. Um, you don't take the don't take the sleep sleeping pills. This is not going to give you the right kind of sleep. Um, so what can you, let me explain why first, like really quickly. So sleep, what's happening while you sleep? It's not an unconscious state of doing nothing. It's very biologically busy. This is why we spend you know, a third of our lives asleep. So um, with respect to memory, all of the sights and sounds and information and experiences that you paid attention to that were meaningful, emotional, that you cared about, get consolidated into a lasting memory while you sleep. So your hippocampus is doing that while you sleep. So if you don't get a full night's sleep, you're gonna wake up the next day and your hippocampus might not have had enough time to fully do its job. And so your memories might not be fully formed or as strongly formed, or they might not have had a chance to form at all. Um, the other is if you're sleep deprived, I mean, if you wake up the next day and you're exhausted and you're dragging yourself around and Jenna's asking me questions, but I can't really pay attention to her because my frontal cortex has not dragged itself to its day job and can't pay attention to anything. So if I can't pay attention well today, what am I not gonna be able to do well today? make memories memories so mm -hmm. i'm going to walk through today with a form of amnesia if i didn't get enough sleep last night the third has to do with alzheimer's so while we sleep the glial cells in your brain these, these are the the janitors the sewage and sanitation department they're busy clearing away all of the metabolic debris that accumulated while you were in the business of being awake and one of the most important things that it clears away is a protein called amyloid beta now, if amyloid beta doesn't get cleared away, it's sticky and it will bind to itself and form amyloid plaques. And if enough amyloid plaques accumulate, you will trigger the beginnings of Alzheimer's disease. Now, the good news is it's not one bad night of sleep. It's 15 to 20 years of amyloid plaque. I know. It's 15 to 20 years of amyloid plaque accumulation before you reach that tipping point. But it's also like 
you know, Alzheimer's is not your brain's destiny. You have some influence here. So every time you can give yourself a good night's sleep, you're like, yay, I'm lowering my amyloid levels. I'm keeping that scale from tipping in the bad direction and I'm tipping it toward saving myself from Alzheimer's. Um, so caffeine, here's something you can do. So how you sleep better, you need to make sure um, the room is cold or cool. You wanna decrease your body temperature by a couple of degrees. So if it's too hot in there, coffee. Caffeine is great for your memory. Caffeine increases your attention, ah, helps you form your memories. But you want to be careful of when you have that last latte of the day because the half-life of caffeine is five hours, which means five hours later, you'll still have half the concentration of caffeine still buzzing around in your brain and body. So if you have a cappuccino at seven o'clock at night, you still have about 30 <gasps> milligrams of caffeine zipping around your brain at midnight and that will interfere with your ability to fall asleep mm. um, so caffeine's good but be careful of when um stress is major so if you want to have a better memory we have to do a better job of of shielding ourselves or um uh protecting ourselves from the massive amount of chronic stress we're all exposed to yeah, yeah we just had a question about this about stress intercepting the retrieval of memories like preventing remembering a skill or spoiling the joy of a memory sorry to interrupt you but i yeah, just no, this to is, pop that up there be the last. yes so okay so let's go over stress so an acute stressor so a stressor that happens once is meant to be a quick on and off experience so it's like back in the day again it's predators or enemies are attacking stress response is on it's your body's mobilization to threat danger, emergency. So adrenaline goes up, cortisol goes up. We, we, you know, mobilize glucose, mobilize the muscles. We stop thinking because you don't want to be sitting around going, oh, let me think about what I should do. Like, you know, run for your life. Like this is a moment. So um, we, the stress response today isn't, the acute response isn't lions and tigers and bears. It's getting up in the morning. It's hitting the brakes when the car in front of you stops short. It's having enough alertness activation, um, a certain amount of stress to you know, give a presentation, um, to, you know, to, to rise to an occasion. Um, if you're a baseball player, just to be up at bat, right? If you're an athlete, like to, you have to have a certain amount of stress to do something. But then there's a peak amount and you don't want more than that or you'll be in overwhelm. So if too much mm -hmm. stress, as a is, is present, this is when you can't, it inhibits the retrieval of stuff you know. And we've experienced this with if you've studied for a test and you know the information, but you're really scared, you're really stressed and you show up and you totally choke, you draw a blank, your brain is unable to retrieve what, it's, what it knows because there's too much stress on board. Um, so a certain amount of stress can help us create new memories um, it can help activate our brain, wake it up, and and so we're available to learn new things. Um, and a certain amount is necessary for us to show up to do the things, but if too much is there, it will inhibit the retrieval of memories you've already made. Chronic mm. stress is always bad for your memory. It will actually shrink the size of your hippocampus, that part of your brain you need to form new memories. Um, it's not irreversible which is great because this past year between the election and the pandemic, a lot of us were like, you know, in the fetal position. Um, so it, it's been, you know, uncertainty, lack of control and so social isolation. Those are the three top major psychological stressors. And I tick all of those boxes. So it's like, if you're just exposed to unrelenting stress, the shutoff valve breaks and it isn't a quick on quick off. It's oh my God, the cortisol can't shut the whole thing off. And now we're just dumping adrenaline and cortisol into our brains and bodies without any breaks. And so when that happens, it's very bad for creating new memories and it's very bad for retrieving stuff you already know. And so what can you do? I can't solve the pandemic. Um, but this is where when people tell you, oh, yoga, meditation, mindfulness, these are the things that can restore your cortisol levels and restore the size of your hippocampus so it can save your hippocampus. Yeah. And so a lot of folks out there are, I know people are resistant to some of these practices and are thinking like, well, I don't know how to meditate. I can't shut off my thoughts or like, oh, I'd need, I'm not a hippy dippy person or I'd have to join some like Buddhist retreat in Nepal before I can sit down and meditate. 
So let me just offer you all this. It's nine seconds. I'm going to help you. Nine seconds is all you need. So if you ever in the course of your day feel like your shoulders are up like this, your jaws, this, like you're stressed, right? You're, <laughs> you're, yeah. So here's what you can do. If you, if you're in a situation where you can close your eyes, do that. But if you're in front of people, you don't have to breathe in through your nose to the count of four. Hold it for a second and then exhale through your nose to the count of four. Notice how you feel in this moment. And here's the deal. If you are running for your life, you do not breathe slowly in and out through your nose. If you're running for your life, it's right. That's the adrenaline cortisol. So if we, the, so the running for your life in the stressful situation causes cortisol and adrenaline to go up, but we can also do the feedback the other way. If we, by breathing calmly in and out through your nose, you're telling your physiology, you're telling your brain and your body, I am safe. Everything's okay. And so you can, in the inverse direction, get your cortisol levels to come down, even though there's a whole shit show going on around you. So, you can do nine seconds. I know you can. Nine seconds. I wish, I, wish I hadn't done this now because I just feel like I had a whole body relaxation moment and now I forget the rest of my questions because I'm not even stressed anymore. It was great. I will say that when I was um, reading, there were two things I did immediately to bring my stress level down and give myself better sleep, better memory. Um, and one of them was to exercise. I thought, oh, maybe I should actually get on the elliptical in my study that I bought during the pandemic instead of just looking at it and being like, that's a nice sculpture. So I did yeah, that. that. Yeah, it did help. And last night I did get seven and a half hours of sleep. I look at my Fitbit every day and, and it, I do feel so much better. And so Lisa, thank you for the tips for the breathing tip. I've been doing that all wrong, by the way. I've been inhaling through my nose and exhaling through my mouth. And I'm like, oh, maybe that's why that hasn't worked for like the last 12 you can. years. I mean, that's a technique too, but it actually, the through the nose thing, it's called ujjayi breathing. And it really does tell your nervous system, oh, I'm not running for my life from a predator. And like today, our our thoughts are predators. So yeah. um, it really, you really can get worked up just sitting on your couch. Um, oh, but so it's running for its life. Yeah. That was so interesting too. And in, in, remember, one of the things I was reading about stress is that your own thoughts, even though we're not running from mastodons anymore, your own thoughts are so powerful and your feelings are so powerful that it's like having an armed gunman in your living room. And I know many of us have felt this way over the last year and the last several years, honestly. So um, you should... Definitely practice the breathing, do your meditation, do yoga. I'm not a yoga person, but I'll ellipse, I'll ellipse everywhere. Um, anything you can do to bring your stress down. And there's also like stuff you can eat that will help your memory. So if you want to know more about your memory tips, you should buy this book. Learn when it's okay to forget. Learn how to better remember. Um, M-E-N-S, right? So meaningful, emotional, new, and surprising, and also creating a story. Thank you, Margaret, for the mnemonic device. That is helpful. You made it meaningful for me, my community. Um, I want to ask one last question. Actually, I have many, so many questions, but one last question is um, to comfort our audience. What is the difference between just your regular memory lapses, like the tip of the tongue thing or where my glasses or whatever, and then early onset Alzheimer's or, or dementia? Yeah, let me give two examples um, that I think will be memorable and helpful. So the first you've already kind of heard is that the tip of the tongue, like, oh, what's his name? If the words that go missing are proper nouns, no big deal. If the words that go missing, if you're frequently forgetting things like, oh, what's the name of the thing I write with? A pen? If that's happening a lot, doesn't have to be Alzheimer's, but it might be something. It might be a B12 deficiency. It might be that you're not getting good sleep. It could be your sleep hygiene. So like, it's something to look into that can hopefully be addressed. Um, this this is the example that I love that really seems to land with folks. So um, I where did I put my car? I'm, I'm, I keep forgetting where I park, and does that mean I have Alzheimer's? So here's the deal. If you go to the, you park in a mall parking garage, you go shop for a couple of hours, you come back and you're I don't know where it is. Um, it's probably because you didn't pay attention to where you put it. You were gabbing with your girlfriend. You were on the phone. You were texting. You're in a rush, whatever. You left that parking space without paying attention to it. Now you're just, am I on level three? Am I on level four? I don't know. You'll find it. If you have Alzheimer's, it's not that. It's you leave the mall and you think, 
I don't remember how I got here. Did I drive myself? Did someone drop me off? Um, or you're standing in front of your car and you don't recognize it as yours and you're wondering where your car is and it might take a few minutes before you're like, oh my God, I'm standing right in front of it. That's mine. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that's the difference. Mm -hmm. it, it's really, it's distinct. It, the distinction is very clear. It's not, you know, oh, where'd I put my phone? It's, I suddenly don't know how to use my phone. Um, so it's not like, you know, I forgot where I put the car. It's that I don't remember what a car is or I don't remember. Or I don't remember that that's mine. I can't remember what my car looks like. Mm. Um, I don't remember how I got here. Mm. Yeah, it's that. Okay. Yeah. And one last thing that I would like to offer our audience, which I found st struck such a chord with me, is that we are not just memory. So mm. if people are experiencing these symptoms or you know somebody who's suffering from dementia or Alzheimer's, those people can still feel love. They can still retrieve love. They can still have feelings, right? Your Nana went through this process. I'll ask you to speak a tiny bit about that before we let you go. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I think that, I mean, sort of the last real chapter of this book, I call it the memory paradox. And I really took that opportunity to sort of weigh in on, I think our culture reveres intellect and memory almost to a fault. And I think, I think I hope one of the, the things that I've communicated in this book is that while memory is amazing and essential to the functioning of almost everything we do, it's also kind of dumb. Like your memory is going to forget, you know, I don't little list everyone who texted you three days ago. What'd you have for lunch last Thursday? Um, tell me all about the load of laundry you did two weeks ago. Like, no. So your memory, you forget a lot. And so, you know, when someone has Alzheimer's, it, it it's devastating. And yet memory isn't everything because we're walking around our whole lives and memory isn't everything. Mm -hmm. We don't remember most of it. <laughs> and so even when the meaningful is forgotten, even when you lose access to knowing who the loved ones in your life are, like my Nana did, she didn't know who we were. She still knew we loved her. She was still a human being capable of and worthy of feeling loved and loving us. She didn't know who we were, but she definitely felt the love in the room. And so, you know, that's that's an important distinction for folks to know. And she might not remember what I said to her five minutes from now, right? But she she would remember how I made her feel. Her face would light up when she'd see me. So yeah, memory's everything, but it's also nothing in some ways. I uh, love that. Thank you so much. We are more than our memories. There's also love. Lisa, do you have a copy of your book like next to you? I should have asked you this before, but love to hold Everybody, you should remember to buy Remember. Actually, it, I think it would make a great Mother's Day gift, actually. So you should buy it for every mother you know in your entire life, at least 50 copies of this book for each person. <laughs> Thank you for making thank our memory you, understandable to us and accessible. And thank you for being an ambassador of neurological comfort to so many people on so many levels. I know there are so many fans of yours watching this conversation who uh, feel greatly relieved that they don't need to know where their glasses are. Yeah, good. Uh, Jenna, thank you. This is so much fun. I can't wait to see you in person. Thank you for joining us. I'm Trisha Blanchett for a Mighty Blaze podcast. My debut novel, Herrick's End, is due out in May 2022, and pre-orders are available now if you want to check it out. Join us next time for a musical conversation with renowned singer-songwriter Mary Gaucher, who recently wrote her first book. Until then, keep your blaze burning and your pages turning. Oh, 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 oh,